You can grab your Bibles and go ahead and begin to find Jonah. If you need to use your table of contents, that's okay, because this is a little bitty book in the Old Testament. So go ahead and be flipping to Jonah chapter 3. And if this is your first time with us, my name is Justice Froman. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad you chose to worship with us, and uh, I believe it's going to be a good time in God's Word. And so um, we're in Jonah, and we're going to be in chapter 3. And, um, and so as we do, we're going to read the full text, which is an entire chapter of the Bible. And I know you love when you come to church and you can leave saying, I read a chapter of the Bible today. And um, check it off your reading plan, Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read it together and then um, we'll dive in. So Jonah 3, if you're ready, just say jump. All right, Jonah 3, 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city, going to a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the great, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray over our time in the word. Father, I just pray as we um, seek to hear from you from Jonah 3, that your spirit would guide us, that you would teach us and, and um, give us understanding. And I pray it would guide my uh, speech today, that I would rightly divide the word of truth, and that it would be helpful and edifying to the body of Christ, that your spirit would work on us as we want to receive from this text all that you have for us. So come and have your way today, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So have you ever um, like um, needed a second chance at something? You do something, you're like, I, I, could do, I need a second chance, like mulligan. Isn't that what they call it in golf? I don't play golf. But um, I've heard it said. Uh, anyways, the, whenever I was, uh, Cammie and I were dating uh, not too long, uh, and then I got a job at uh, working at AT&T and had to go through the training on that, and I had to get a commercial license to work there. Now, the problem is that I had already gotten the job and started working, like I was already like on payroll in the office, but I still didn't have the commercial driver's license, and I only had a couple of weeks to get it before I was, didn't have the job anymore. And I got three tries to get this commercial driver's license. So I studied, and I studied, and I studied, because my job depended on it. And I was ready to go take the test. And a coworker he drives me up to the, to the place in Pascagoula is where it was. And, 
and take, takes me to take the test, and I get in there, and I need to take the test. I get, the, you know, get on the computer, and I start taking the test. And as soon as I start, I think, I don't know any of this. I don't know any of these answers, any of these questions. And I was like, this is crazy. I didn't study any of this. What's wrong? So, of course, failed it miserably. Went to the desk. They said, okay, you failed, but you have three tries. You can come back tomorrow if you want and take it again. So I went home, and I was like, I racking my brain. How in the world could I fail that? I've been studying, studying, studying. And I said, oh, I think they gave me the wrong test. There's no way that was the right test. So I go back to the next, study some more cram, go back to the next day, walk in, and I, I'd like to take the commercial driver license test. And I said, okay. And I said, but one thing, I think you guys gave me the wrong test yesterday. And they, of course, no, 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 we didn't do that. We didn't do that. I said, okay. So then they put me in my booth, and I start taking the test again. And this time I'm like, I know this. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. And halfway through, the little tenant, you know, the clerk, she says, hey, hey, you're right. We did give you the wrong test yesterday. And I was like, oh, thank you. But I was so rattled by the whole experience that I failed that one too. And I was like, no. And I was like, I got one more chance. But I'm, I said, does that one, the first one count against me because it was the wrong test? Anyway, so I go back again, and this time I'm feeling good about it. And I passed the test. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. The <laughs> Sometimes you just need a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. And I'm grateful that in life, in many situations, we get second chances. And what the whole passage today is about is, is, is that God gives Jonah and Nineveh a second chance. Nineveh is this wicked city. And Jonah is this... <laughs> this reverend on the run, right? He's like, I'm gone. He's running from God's call, and God pursues him and chases him and captures him and, and brings him back to what he's supposed to be doing. And, uh, and so he gives people second chances is kind of the idea here. Um, I want to just give you the big idea, and the way this sermon's going to work, let me give you the big idea, and then we're going to unpack that idea in three ways. So the first idea, the main idea of the whole sermon, if you leave right after this, you would have had it all, is God uses weak people to reach wicked people by the power of his word. That's what's going on in Jonah chapter 3. God uses weak people to reach wicked people by the power of his word. And so let's unpack that line by line. First one is that God uses weak people. Point one if you're taking notes. God uses weak people. Look at verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, God came to Jonah a second time. How many of you are grateful for second times? He came to him a second time. Now, what was the first time that God came to Jonah? Well, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 2, in your Bible, it's probably on like the same section, the same page. God, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so remember, God calls Jonah, he flees, God grabs him. So as I said last week, God says go, Jonah says no, God says oh. 
I'll come get you. And, and he went and got him, and then, and then he re and then there's the second time. And so now God's saying, go, and Jonah says, okay, we're going. Yes, yes, sir, I don't want to experience that again. And, and as evil or as wicked as the Ninevite people were, and he could go and he could get killed going into this city, he was like, I would rather do that than experience what I just had with God a minute ago. And so he goes, and um, he's, he's the prophet who really literally tried to run from God, and God gives him a second chance. Now, what's amazing about this is that God didn't have to. Like, God, he didn't treat Jonah like a, he didn't just fry him like a burnt piece of toast, right, and get someone else to do the job. How many of you know God could have got someone else? Like, he said, okay, Jonah, go do that. See how that works out for you. I'll get someone else, and they'll be blessed because of it. But he doesn't. He pursues Jonah. He gives him a second chance. And um, we often, as God's people, we often need to be told several times before we, we listen. And um, how many of you, how many of you, you have the kids that they listen to everything you say the first time? Anybody have those kids? Like, we know <laughs> that children, their tendency is to, it takes several times of you just going over it again and again and telling them for them to actually be obedient, and we're really the same way. I don't know if you've ever had the experience that I've had where I've felt the Lord pricking me about something, and I'm like, no, God, I don't, I don't think so. And he'll prick you again, you're like, I don't think so. And he'll prick you again, he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And then finally, you're like, okay, it gets, so, <laughs> it gets so strong, that you're like, okay, God, okay, okay, I'll do it. That's how God is, and he is patient, and he's persistent, and he pursues. But notice also that God brings him back to his first calling. Um, he doesn't change what he wants Jonah to do. Chapter 1, he says, go to Nineveh, preach to them. Um, and in chapter 3, he calls him again a second time, go to Nineveh. This calling is the same. He's not like, oh, Jonah, Jonah, you have a problem going to Nineveh? Okay, that's all right. Well, look, let's see if we can find something else that you enjoy doing. Isn't that what we like to do? Let's see if we can find something else that you're skilled at and gifted at. And let's see if we can get you somewhere where you're really happy. He's like, no, God's will doesn't change based on our feelings about what he's called us to do. There's, uh, this is kind of reminiscent of uh, what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, where he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That he is doing something uh, in you, and he's going to per be persistent to complete his purposes. And what's kind of interesting about this is that it's God wants to do something in you as much as he wants to do something through you. And so this whole thing with Jonah is not just about getting a message to Nineveh because he could use anybody. He is patient with Jonah because he's wanting to accomplish something in Jonah that he as, as Paul said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he's not going to give up. He's patient and pursuing, and he gives us second chances. And then verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was exceedingly great, three days' journey in its breaths. Breath, breaths? It's so close to breath, right? Anyways, 
I'll get one of you to pronounce it next time. It was an exceedingly great city, is the idea here. And, um, but it wasn't morally great, we know that. It, was, it wasn't this, they, they were terrible people, they were wicked people. Um, it wasn't godly. And some even speculate on how great it was geographically, that it was probably not even that large of a city. This, the idea here is that it was exceedingly great. It was great in the eyes of God. Which means this, that it was import, these people were important to God. So the people that you think that might not be important to God, these people are important to God and so it's great in the eyes of God. He has a plan for Nineveh. He wants to spare Nineveh. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Jonah obeyed. God's not looking um, for people to be winsome as much as he's looking for people to be willing. Like to just obey what God wants you to do. And then verse 4, he says... Jonah began to go to the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this warning is a very simple sermon. But inside this warning is an implicit invitation to repent and be saved. Um, periods of uh, testing in Scripture were often 40 days long. You know, remember like Jesus, he was in, went to the wilderness for 40 days, and throughout the, the Bible, these 40-day periods are often periods of, of testing or trial, and so the whole idea of there's this countdown in 40 days, something's going to happen, is an implicit invitation that if you repent, you might could prevent it from happening. Because, you know, if God wanted to just destroy them, he could have just done it without warning, right? Because he's done that before. When he, whenever he wanted to get rid of Sodom and Gomorrah, he just rained fire down from heaven, there was no preaching through the town, giving people an opportunity to repent. It was just, boom, fire from heaven, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, which is also interesting that this in the message where he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, that word in the original Hebrew is the same word that is used whenever he talks about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you kind of wonder if Jonah even kind of had that in his mind, that this is going to be the type of thing that happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. That he, he goes in there, he preaches a short sermon, drops the mic, walks out of the city to watch it burn. And, and what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, it got around. People knew about it. You, you even wonder if this was brought to mind that in the, the minds of the Ninevites. If whenever they heard this prophet preaching, they were like, oh... If we don't do something, we're going to be toast like Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, if you don't, aren't familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we don't have time to address it today, but it's in Genesis 19. You can go and study that. Um, the, the idea here is that God is doing a great work to save uh, a great city, and um, He's using someone who is not necessarily spiritually strong to do it. You know, Jonah is uh, the son of a Amittai, and we talked about in week one that a Amittai uh, means truth or faithfulness. Um, so Jonah is the son of faithfulness, but ironically, he's not super faithful. And so he's not the, the most faithful or strong. He's reluctant to obey God. He's neglectful to pray. 
and, um, and he has a bad attitude. Even after he preaches and everybody repents, he's upset about it. But God uses him to reach the city of Nineveh. And the idea is that God uses weak people. He's not looking for the spiritual giants to do the things that he needs to do in the world. He uses everyday, weak, normal, usual people. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about this. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 26, verse 26 through 28 says, For I consider your calling, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast at the presence of God. Like God uses weak things, weak people to show His greatness. The point, the, the point of the story of Jonah is not the greatness of the fish, and it's not the greatness of Jonah. It's the greatness of our God. And uh, the fact that he's using this wild, rebellious prophet with a simple, succinct message, and the whole city repents, shows um, that God can use weak people. If he can use me, he can use you. And many of you know my story. Uh, I've been here for a long time. But when I was 23 years old, 23 years old, you crazy people, I took, uh, became pastor here. And um, you took this little, and I'm, I'm like an introverted guy, socially awkward. Like, aren't you supposed to like, like being around people? <laughs> If you're a pastor, like that's what I thought, and I was just always wondering that, like God, I'm, I, you're like, how can you be that whenever you get up and give messages in front of crowds every week? It's because this is a monologue. You generally don't get to talk back to me. We don't have to have a conversation. I get to come in here, say what I want to say, and then leave. You know, I actually am a lot more awkward if you find me in the lobby or or in a Bible study. It's like I don't, I, and. And I've struggled with that because all the pastors I've ever really seen or been around are people that they kind of seem like politicians in the sense of they can talk to anybody and, and get to know anybody, make everybody feel like they're, you know, loved and stuff. And, you know, but if he can use me, if he can use me, young, silly, introverted, to do what he wants to do here, he can use you. Actually, Warren Wearsby said this. He said that um, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you and the power of God cannot use you. That the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you and the power of God cannot use you. And the strength that I found to e even do what God called me to do was from the scriptures, from Jeremiah 1, where he affirmed at least my calling that, hey, you're young and you're inexperienced, but just do what I tell you to do. Say what I tell you to say, and I will be with you. I'll give you strength. And if he can use me, he can use you. If he can use Jonah, he can use you. God uses weak people. Second thing, to, um, to reach wicked people. Look at uh, verse 5 again. It says, uh, and the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So they believed. They, they, they're like fasting and repenting and putting on sackcloth. These are actions of repentance. From the least to the greatest means that it transcended um, all the class system. If you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Uh, everyone in the city was doing this, repenting um, and turning to God. God was reaching the city through um, these wicked uh, people. Look at verse 6. He says, And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. In this verse, we have four things that the king did. He um, got up off of his throne, which is a symbol of his autonomy, his uh, rule. It's the idea that I am in charge. And repentance means that you get off the throne of your life. That you, 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 you say, I'm going to surrender my autonomy. I'm going to let God sit on the throne of my life. Him make the choices. Him make the decisions. Him be in charge. I mean, kings don't get off their thrones. This is incredible. He removed his robe. That's the second thing. This was a symbol of his wealth or his self-sufficiency. He covered himself in sackcloth. Uh, this would have been like a, we would, have, we would know it as like burlap. So he covered himself in this sackcloth, and this was what poor people and slaves would wear. This is a demonstration of humility. It's a, it's a symbol of your depravity, being poor in spirit. So, and then also wearing this um, depicted the entire population, that they, the entire population viewed themselves as needy before God, poor before God, and a slave to God. It's, it's their way of an outward and physical demonstration of their repentance. And he sat in ashes. This was a sign of helplessness and despair. It was something that mourners would do. If you're mourning the loss of someone, you would sit in ashes. It's a symbol of grief over sin. And, um, and that's one of the things that uh, repentance does at first, is that it grieves you. You should be grieved by your sin. Um, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow, godly sorrow brings a repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That there is, whenever we are uh, convicted of our sin, we should be grieved by our sin. And it should lead us to repentance. And that's how you, you know if someone is truly repentant, right? Because you, all, you know people who they have a demonstration of sorrow. I'm sorry. Tears, mourning, wailing. I'm sorry, I can't believe I did that. Please forgive me. But no change in behavior. It's a, it's a sorrow that just it's going to lead to death eventually. If you don't repent, it's going to lead to eternal death. But here he's saying there's a grief that leads to a change in your life. It's grief over sin. How serious do you take your sin? This seems to be, what's happening here, seems to be much more than a simple confession. It seems to be much more than, God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me. Please forgive me, God. I think you should ask God to forgive you, of course. But it seems like this is much more than a, a simple confession. That their belief in God, 
uh, actually leads to a change in uh, behavior. So how do you know if you've repented? How do you feel about your sin? How do you feel about your sin? Are you grieved by your sin? Does it grieve you? Does it lead you to repentance? Uh, verse 7, he says, And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or uh, drink water but let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So he calls everyone fast. Everyone wears sackcloth, even the animals. So you can imagine like, I got to put this on my chicken. Come on, chicken. We got to put this burlap on you. Come on. Like that, see, see, like this is a little odd. Why? That would, of course, like the are the animals have they sinned against God? And this, <laughs> this um, perplexes commentators on why he told the animals to wear sackcloth and, and turn and fast. And I, I think that um, that it could simply probably be this is a season of focused repentance. All right? Uh, don't go be busy feeding the chickens and the cows. We're all doing this together. So you sit there and mourn and repent and, and turn to God. Don't even worry about your everyday normal uh, chores taken care of. I mean, you've got to understand, in this culture, it's not like you get to go to the Walmart and pick up your dinner for the night or for the week. It's like you, you lived, part of your life was securing food for you and your family. And that took up a lot of your time. And so if we want to focus ourselves on repentance, then we have to fast. And if we're going to appropriately focus on repentance, we have to have our chickens and our cows and, and everything that we take care of fast as well. It's the idea of everything is turning to God. Everyone Man and beast. This is a national day of repentance. I mean, just imagine. This is the king getting off his throne, putting on burlap, and then issuing this decree. Imagine if the president of the United States comes on TV. And he's not wearing a suit like normal. He's wearing a burlap bag. And he says, guys, yeah. he says, guys, um, we have been sinning a lot against God. And so I am decreeing a national day or week of prayer and repentance. And so fast and mourn and turn from your wicked ways and believe God. Like what that would do to a nation if the leader of the nation does that. So he says, call out mightily. Mightily is the idea of calling out with sincerity. We're not doing this for show. This is real. He says, turn from his evil. Turn from his evil. All right, so repentance starts with a change in mind, um, a change of your mind. It's, repentance is a change of how you think about your sin. It's that I'm agreeing with God about my sin. See, remember earlier in chapter 1, verse 2, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God recognizes they are evil. 
And then here in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, and let those pay, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil way. It's whenever you recognize that, yes, I agree with God. My way is evil. What I'm doing is wrong. I cannot continue in this way. When you see your your way as evil, as not okay anymore. He says, turn from your evil and your violence. Remember, in week one, we talked about the violence of the Assyrian Empire, that, um, that these were cruel people. They would go into a city to conquer it, and they would kill everyone. They would um, rape and kill the women and the children. They would take the men as prisoners of war. They would skin people alive. They, if you, there's, there's like uh, these drawings, whatever, they, when you draw on like the walls and tablets and stuff, ancient, what are they called? Hieroglyphics? Yeah. There's hieroglyphics. I didn't prepare that line, apparently. There's hieroglyphics of these Assyrians um, with their enemies and knives to their skin because they'd skin them alive. They'd skin their enemies alive. They'd bury them in sand up to their neck. They'd pull their tongue out of their mouth and put a stake through it so that you would uh, die of thirst and, and, and you'd just be, it'd be cruel and unusual. They'd stack up the skulls of, they'd cut your heads off and stack up the skulls of their enemies outside the town in a pyramid just to show everyone who comes by, this is what we do to people who are against us. Don't cross the Assyrians. They were cruel and unusual people. And they're recognizing that. Uh, the, the prophet Nahum, he actually addresses and, and, and talks about the evil of uh, Nineveh in, in Nahum 3. And here's a summary of what he says, that Nineveh was really good at lying and stealing and witchcraft, and prostitution, child sacrifice, and murder. They went and put that in their bio on Facebook. But that's what they really were good at. And it produced uh, God's fierce anger. It says in verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn uh, from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that's another idea that we're uncomfortable with. We're uncomfortable with the idea that God has anger. We read the Old Testament and we're like, Man, God's killing people in the Old Testament. <laughs> I want New Testament God, but He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And he's killing people in the New Testament, too. I don't know if you realize. Somebody, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they kind of lied about their, their giving at church. And he's like, boom, like dead. So don't lie about your giving to the Holy Spirit, okay, in church. Don't want to see you go. But <clears throat> he has fierce anger. He has fierce anger towards sin. And we don't like that idea. We don't like the idea of a judgmental, uh, like angry a God that has wrath. But, um, but God, God is, okay, notice this. Listen to this. God is love, but he has wrath. God is love, but he has wrath. And true love must have wrath. If if you are indifferent about someone hurting your spouse or your children or someone you love, if you're indifferent to that, 
I would question whether you really even love them. Because when, when someone hurts someone you love, it produces in you wrath and judgment and justice. Without that, it's just apathy and indifference. And so for God to actually love people, He has to have just wrath towards wickedness. I'm sure if you're a parent, and maybe if you're not even a parent, what happened this week produced in you a sense of just wrath towards a person that would do what happened in Texas. God has just wrath. So he, he is love, but he's, he's, he's just and he has judgment. And it's only by the grace of God that we are able to live it with that. That he is gracious to us and, um, and Jesus is the one who appeases his wrath on the cross for our sins, takes his wrath so that we can experience the love of God in its fullest. So they're wicked. They're wicked. And in verse 10, he says, when God saw that they, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from his disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did um, not do it. They turned from their evil way. They turned. Um, that's what repentance is. It's, it's turning around. Uh, it's, I was walking in one direction, and I, I'm changing my direction. I was going down one path, and I was um, made aware that I was going in the wrong direction, so I turned around. So recently, very recently, I was uh, at Slidell. I was going to a bookstore at, in Goss, off Goss Boulevard in Slidell. And I know Slidell and somewhat, and I know how to get home. And so I get on interstate, I start heading home, and I'm, I'm just do-do-do-do coming back here to Mississippi. After a little while, I see a bridge that I know does not lead to Mississippi. And I, know, I realized as soon as I saw the bridge, I am headed to New Orleans. <laughs> How did this happen? And you, it's disorienting. Disorienting, I was like, I thought I knew exactly where I was going. Disorienting. But as soon as I uh, was given the information, the, the revelation, that I was headed in the wrong direction, I immediately, as soon as I could, changed my behavior to head in the right direction. And repentance is when God convicts you, whenever you're given the information that you're headed in the wrong direction, and you agree, I am, I am headed in the wrong direction, I agree with God about my sin, it is wicked, it is evil. Repentance is as soon as I'm made aware of that, I change the direction I'm going, that my life turns around, and I no longer head in that direction. I head in the correct direction, in the direction of the Lord. That's what repentance looks like. Salvation came to these wicked, wicked people. Um, God's mercy is so great that when we repent, He relents. And that's the story here. That he, they repent, and he relents. And so let's um, let's look a little closer, drive this home. Who is the person that you think could never be saved? 
Who's the person in your mind that you love and you want them to, to come to Christ, but you could never see them in your mind? You can't even imagine it, what it looked like for them to be a Christ follower. Like they're, they're so, so rejecting God, it's never going to happen. God can save that person. And, and we are to go and pursue that person, as Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. So not give up, pray for them. Pursue them because God can save them. Now, who's the person or the people that you hope never gets saved? That when you think about them, your blood pressure rises. And you hope that they get what's coming to them. You hope that you want God's judgment and God's wrath for them. And you might not say that, but that's how you feel inside. God wants to save them too. God wants to save them too. Israelites hated Nineveh, and rightfully so. They were wicked. And God wanted to save them. And God can save your wicked self, too. Okay? I don't want you to think that you're not wicked. Like, but I'm not wicked. I'm good. I'm a good person. Yes, I, okay, so you're a good person, right? But moving closer to God, we re, we, the, the more you see of God, the more you see his perfection and his holiness, and the more you're made aware of your depravity and your sinfulness, no matter how good you are. The closer you get to his holiness, the more you're aware of your wickedness. And we should turn and repent. And if you haven't had a moment like this where God's convicted you of something and you've turned from it, um, maybe today would be the day where you search yourself because God wants to come to wicked people. So God uses weak people to reach wicked people finally by the power of his word. Look at verse 4 again. So Jonah began to go into the city. Well, let's go back to verse 1. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, go to uh, Nineveh and um, preach out against them. Verse 4, so Jonah began to go to the city. Going a day's journey, he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the original language, it's five words. Five words. 40 days, you're all going to die. And then he leaves. English, it's eight words. Okay, not much better. But the Hebrew is five, it's five words. And, and some commentators, they believe this is probably a summary of his message, that he didn't just say five words and leave, but that this is kind of a summary of the whole message. Whether or not it's one or the other, the point of it being written like this is it's about, it's to reveal to us the power of God's word to save. It wasn't with his persuasive argument that won the people of Nineveh. He gave five words that God gave him to say, and that's what saved people. How could a short message like this save anyone? Because five words are enough words when they're God's words. The word of the Lord is able to change 
even a complex and sophisticated urban population like Nineveh. It comes in and it changes the whole city by the word of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? The greatest miracle in this book is not the, that Jonah survived being swallowed by a fish. The greatest miracle in this book is that the entire um, greatly wicked city of Nineveh repented and everyone was saved from the wrath of God by the simple proclamation of the word of God. And that's the kind of guarantee that God puts behind his word. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, I shall, and it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed at the thing for which I sent it. That his word is guaranteed to accomplish the purposes for which it was sent. And one of, and one of the primary purposes is to bring salvation to those who hear it. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. That it's the word of God, the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to save. He comes in with a simple message, and it's just the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So how are they born again? Through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all glory uh, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that is preached to you. So it's just the Word of God preached that has the power to change people. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be an apologist. I think it's good for us as Christians to grow in our understanding and knowledge of the gospel and the Word of God and be able to defend it. But you don't have to be clever to give the Word of God. You just release it. You just give it I heard this story uh, about Billy Graham, this guy, uh, pastor, young pastor. He said, I was, uh, had the privilege of uh, driving Billy Graham from a crusade after one of his crusades. And um, he said, so Billy's in the back seat, and we're driving along. And I just said, uh, Billy, that was a great message. Thank you for that. He said, it's just the gospel, Right? And I don't do a great Billy Graham impersonation, <laughs> but it's, it's just the gospel, you know? He was like, okay. <laughs> it's just the gospel. Like, it's not me. I'm not great. It's just the word of God. It's been said uh, that the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just have to let it out of its cage, right? I don't have to... I don't have to have an argument with you about the validity of the word of God. I just have to release it. And the word um, has the power. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like the fire that consumes and like the hammer that breaks the stone? That if the word of God has the ability to uh, completely just break apart 
the hardness of someone's heart and to just hit them with the word of God. Not literally, don't be literally hitting. You get it. God's word has the power to change lives. It has the power to change your life. If you'll uh, read it, if you'll read it. That's the story. That's, that's what it's about. It's about God's greatness and the greatness of his word. He uses this weak prophet to go and preach to these wicked people. And just the simple proclamation of the word of God is what transforms the entire city. And they're saved. I want to point out to you, um, you know, in the gospel, or not the gospel of Jonah, in the book of Jonah, there's all types of these um, shadows and parallels of, of, of Christ and his work. And I just want to point out one to you from chapter 3. And uh, that's from the king of Nineveh. The king, uh, notice what he does. The king gets off of his throne. Um, he takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth. And he sits in ashes. And he calls the nation to repent. And because of his leadership, uh, in a sense, the whole city is saved. And we have a king who left his throne and he took off his robes and he put on the poor simplicity of humanity like a sackcloth robe. And he sat in the ashes of what is the human experience. He humbled himself and he became obedient to God even to the point of a cross and he called in his ministry, he called us to believe and to repent. And because of his actions, he provides salvation for all who will believe. That he um, appeases the wrath of God for us, absorbs it on the cross of Christ, and all you have to do is believe. God's mercy is so great that if we repent, He relents. Do you believe Him? I pray that you will today. Do you share Him? Like Jonah? Do you share Him? I heard this question this week, and it has just been convicting about us being weak messengers or, or sharing the gospel, and this is it. I'm just going to leave it with you bothered me and I just want it to bother you. If God answered in uh, one fail swoop every prayer you prayed last week, would anyone new be in the kingdom of heaven? If God answered all, all the prayers that you prayed, just answer yes to every one of the prayers you prayed last week, would anyone new be in the kingdom of God? because of it. Hey, he uses weak messengers to reach wicked people by the power of his word, and I pray that we would uh, be obedient to that this week. Father in heaven, I pray that you would uh, move powerfully in our hearts today and this week as we seek to uh, obey you. I pray that those who have trusted you, that we would... Um, that we would see that you're calling us to go to the nations, to people who are wicked, that we maybe don't
don't like and are uncomfortable with, but you've called us to go because you love them too. And so I pray that you would empower us to just um, confidently uh, present the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ um, to the people around us and we would see people come to Christ. And I pray that um, if there's someone in the room or watching online who's never trusted you for their salvation, that today would be the day that it, they wouldn't uh, try, like, try to work their way or rely on their own good deeds or their own good works to, to make it to heaven, but that they would just simply say, God, I am wrong. I need you. I need your salvation. I need your mercy and your grace and that you would come to them and save them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that us believers, that you would continually just prick our hearts about the the little sins that we need to repent of and turn from, and that we would increasingly become more like you every single day. And uh, help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, this week. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.